Well, I'm so glad you're here, and maybe uh, you came last week. If you did, you remember that we ended last week with an illustration uh, from the movie The Matrix. And we talked about this whole idea in The Matrix of, of taking the red pill. Uh, it's kind of like this Christian idea of waking up to God's grace. And you wake up when you start to align your life with the teaching of Jesus to his view of the world. And Jesus' view of the world was one of cosmic conflict. That's the way Jesus looked at things. And so, you know, you get red-pilled when you wake up like, you go, wow, there's a battle going on. And so we learned that there was real spiritual powers that meddle in the world. And today we want to talk about who those meddling powers are. We want to kind of give a list of what can they do to me. And we also want to talk a little bit about what their meddling looks like and who are we up against exactly. And then conversely, who are we not up against? Who are we not fighting? Who is not the enemy? And all these things will come together. So if you'll permit me, I'd like to begin where we left off with another Matrix illustration. Uh, the writer-directors, the Wachowski brothers, and if you're keeping up on things, I guess they're now the Wachowski sisters, uh, they really stumbled into a powerful picture, they did, of a biblical view of cosmic conflict in this 1999 movie. I really liked it, a lot of you probably saw it. But just so you kind of get it, we'll uh, review a little bit. It might be their old Catholic background, actually. Both those boys raised as Catholics, and it came back to inspire them. But I think the script of the Matrix movie was just brilliant. I won't say the same for movies two and three. But uh, uh, just so it all makes sense, here was the setting, okay? It's a not-too-distant future where the Matrix is a computer-generated reality. And all humans are lying in stasis, unconscious, but mentally plugged into this false world that's run by AI, by artificial intelligence, sentient programs called agents who oversee the matrix. Now, no one in the matrix can see them, but they are using them and abusing humanity, keeping them enslaved. That's the premise of the movie. So Morpheus, in the middle, he explains all this to Neo, who's only recently been unplugged from this computer-generated reality. So let's watch this clip from the beginning of the movie with the following question in mind. Who is the real enemy in the Matrix? Let's watch. The Matrix is a system, Neil. That system is our enemy. When you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system, and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system, that they will fight to protect it. Were you listening to me, Neo? Or were you looking at the woman in the red dress? I was... Look again. Who's it? This, this isn't the Matrix. No. It's another training program designed to teach you one thing. If you are not one of us, you are one of them. What are they? Sentient programs. They can move in and out of any software still hardwired to their system. That means that anyone we haven't unplugged is potentially an agent. Inside the Matrix, they are everyone, and they are no one. We have survived. Inside the Matrix, they are everyone, and they are no one. So with this setting in the Matrix, you ask the question, who is the real enemy? 
and you go back to what Morpheus just said. He said, the matrix is a system, Neil. That system is our enemy. But when you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we're trying to save. So now translate this into the Christian worldview. When Christians look at the world, they see the same thing. They see businessmen, teachers, lawyers, bricklayers, whatever. Souls, we believe, made in the image of God, made by God, people who matter to God, people who are loved by God, who, people who are pursued by a God who wants to save those souls. Okay? That's the way we look at the world. Now, when we're looking at those people, all those people, they all may be believing false things, they may be doing false things, believing false things, and yet they are not the enemy. They're not the enemy. Now, compare what Morpheus said about evil agents potentially working in, and, uh, or in anyone who's uh, still plugged into the matrix with what Paul says about the world. Okay, check this out. This is a letter to the Ephesian church, middle of the first century. He writes, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Now, just that one little, little verse gives us insight into Paul's picture of cosmic conflict in the world. He clearly believes that the world as such is inhabited by, haunted by spiritual evil and a controlling spiritual evil. He's acknowledging that no one is exempt from this control. Well, that's the amazing thing. He's looking at the Christians and he's saying to them basically, you're not better or different than anybody else. We too, he says, we're dead. We too were held captive by these uh, deceiving agents. We too were slaves to fear and to guilt. We too are feeling impending judgment. We too are feeling disconnect, a sense of hostility between us and God, just sort of an impression that you go through life with, that you and God are not okay. We all lived with that. Those are universal expressions. We're all in the same boat. But once you get freed by grace, you get red-pilled by Jesus you see clearly how you, yes, you, you and I were enemies of God. We believed lies about God. We believed lies about ourselves. And then God's love breaks through. We see him clearly in a moment of grace. We repent and turn. We take the red pill and we escape the world. Your heart is set free uh, it's now at peace with God. You sense God and I are friends. It's completely different. The whole orientation of your life has now been redirected. There's no other way to say it, but you've been born again. You are a different person, the way Jesus would put it in John chapter 3. The truth has set you free. And if you remember in the movie, Neo has the moment. He's lying in his slime coffin, his mind plugged into the matrix, and in a second, the, the big old metal pin pulled out of his brain and he comes awake into the real world so the truth will set you free now that puts a question in the hearts of the liberated ones the ones who are unplugged who is the real enemy here is it the deceived ones or is it the deceiver is it the slaves or is it the slaver is it the guilty ones or is it the one who accuses the one who tempts who is the real enemy here? It's clear, isn't it? The real enemy 
is those who are running the matrix, right? Those still plugged into the matrix are not your enemy. And then what should your attitude towards them be? Unless you're prepared to put the guns on yourself, you who were locked in this same matrix, unless you're prepared to do that, the the more natural impulse is to go back in and free those who were enslaved just like you were. That is a very natural impulse, to get on mission for the liberty of those who have been deluded. They haven't looked at Jesus right. They haven't looked at God right. They haven't looked at themselves right. And I remember this for myself. This was an incredible impulse in me. When I was 15 years old, I was red-pilled by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way to describe it. I, I had been taught this message for years and years and years, but somehow I felt like this is the first time I had ever heard it. And God broke through my shame and my judgmentalism and my uh, petty sinfulness. I felt new. I felt forgiven. I felt like, like the, my whole world had been turned upside down. And you know what? It's not their fault. But I looked at the people around me who had, I'd grown up in church and who had taught this message to me. And I said, why didn't you tell me this sooner? It's like, dude, we've been telling you for 15 years. They had been talking to me about this, but it was like in that moment, it came clear. And you know what else came clear is this impulse. Everyone has to know this. It was kind of like the sense of, you know, I'd grown up in a sort of a a Christianity that I thought was, you know, maybe the truth about the universe, but it didn't do anything for me. But suddenly in the moment when I was freed from my bondage, it's like, oh, it's real. Like all this talk about being born again and the Holy Spirit comes and makes you new and your spirit cries out to God with new familiarity and intimacy. Abba, Father, Daddy. I was like, that was me. I was like, this is so amazing. Everybody has to get in on this. Everybody. That was the impulse. It was natural, right? You're a beggar who found bread. This is great. I know know some beggars. And you go right back. Now, I know what this sounds like. This whole thing about mission that Christians see when they see the cosmic conflict, it just sounds arrogant. I get it. It sounds paternal. If you haven't had that moment, that experience, it sounds paternal. All those poor souls, like little children, stuck in their juvenile blindness, stuck in the matrix, and you, the enlightened one, will set them free. I get it. That sounds really arrogant, but it's not. It's not. If not if you see it the right way. Let me give you a picture. The Apostle Paul had his own red pill moment. He was on the road to Damascus, and he's sitting there persecuting Christians thinking he's pleasing God. He's imprisoning them, and in some cases, overseeing their deaths, thinking God is doing this, you know, just completely blind, completely blind. And then Jesus accosts him on the road to Damascus, and he has this moment, and then he spends the rest of his life traipsing around the Roman Empire saying, everybody's got to hear this. Then he gets hauled into court because everyone's wondering, the Roman authorities are wondering how seditious is this new Jesus movement. And here's this amazing thing. When he's put in front of King Agrippa at one point, um, he's giving his defense like basically trying to, trying to tell him, I'm not worthy of the death penalty here uh, for teaching Jesus. And when he's trying to defend himself, he basically winds up just telling his red pill story, his moment of coming alive in Christ. And here's what Agrippa realizes. At some point in the speech, Agrippa realizes he's not just telling his story. He wants me to see the light. He wants me to join him. And so this is what's written for us by Luke, Acts chapter 26. He says, uh, Agrippa says to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? And listen to Paul's response. 
and take example. He says, I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, save for these chains. I mean, what an amazing thing, right? He's just sitting there giving his defense, saying, look, I, I want everybody to become what I am. I mean, minus the particular impediments of my moment of persecution. I don't wish prison on you. I don't wish chains on you. But Agrippa, Agrippa, yes, I want you to become a Christian. And everybody in this room. You notice what's startlingly absent from that little speech? What's startlingly absent is this modern thing where we would say, well, this is my truth and I came into it, Agrippa. It might not be your truth, but it's my truth. And that's completely missing. We modern religious relativists, we have no problem with Paul having a personal spiritual conversion experience. More power to you, man. Whatever works for you. That's exactly the way we'd say it, too. Whatever works for you. It's your truth, man. That's the way we put it. It's your truth. As if truth was like your favorite color. Yeah, man, green is working for you. That's so totally cool. Well, blue's my thing, but, you know, green for you. Way to go. This is such a weird way to think about religion. Why is it weird? Because it completely thinks that religion is an area where the law of non-contradiction doesn't apply. Where God can be this thing for you and something completely different for someone else and somehow that all just mashes together. Your truth, their truth, everywhere truth, truth. This is a little bit ridiculous when you think about it because there's some ideas in the religious realm that cannot be true because they're so mutually exclusive. My Muslim friend, he believes that Jesus lived but did not die. My Jewish friend believes that Jesus lived and died. I believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again. These pictures of Jesus cannot all be true. They cannot all be true. They are mutually exclusive. That's the way Paul looked at things. Listen, I get it. He might be wrong. He might be wrong. But let's not pretend that when he's talking about what Jesus had done for him, that he thinks that's a preference issue. No, he thinks that's a truth issue. He thinks this is the way the universe is aligned this is the reality of it and i want everybody to come into this reality not just because it is the truth and because we should all conform our lives to what is real but because conforming our lives to what is real liberates as it turns out what is true about god is enormously captivating and beautiful what turns out to be true about god is that he's after you in a way to save you and rescue you and fill you and give you a hope and a purpose what is true, apparently, is that God works, God saves, and this Paul wanted everyone to know. Now, he's not forcing that on anybody. How you peddle it matters, I get it, with gentleness and respect is important, but man, he's just telling his story when he's asked, how is that arrogant? How is that arrogant? That's not arrogant. Man, we do this all the time. You discover some sexy new bit of technology, you are an evangelist right? First thing you do is you whip the thing out and you say, hey, 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 man, 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 this. And then you start peddling it in your circles. I mean, just, man, you, you're an evangelist for that thing. And I keep saying to myself, what are the millions of dollars that these multinational corporations are pay, spending on advertising? They could just rely on you. You're the greatest bit of unpaid advertising the world has ever seen, man. You got to have my Apple phone. This is an amazing thing. I, I was in a, an elder meeting. It was about two years ago. And one of my elders gets out his phone at one point and does this. And I go, oh man, what's that? And he says, these are cheaters. They go on my phone, thin optics. 
now I never forget them. And so here's me, right? I would forget my head if it wasn't screwed on right. I entered, you know, the stage of life when I started needing cheaters. I'm the guy who leaves the house like this. Okay, okay, okay. Keys, phone, wallet. And if I had to add a fourth thing, keys, phone, wallet, glasses, I was screwed. I'd never be able to read the fine print of anything, right? What I needed was a way I could not forget my cheaters. Now they're with me all the time. Fin optics, man. I'm thinking about buying stock in the company. I'm an evangelist because it, it's helped me. It's changed me. Friends, that's not arrogant. Is that arrogant? I don't think that's arrogant. That's just generous. I think that's what that is. And not only is it not arrogant, friends, it's also not um, unloving. It's a loving thing, as judged by an atheist. I'll give you a little story about this. Uh, Penn Gillette, some of you know him, the famous magician, and he's an outspoken atheist. John and I went to one of his shows once, Penn and Teller, and, and he works his atheism into his mag magic bit all the time. He's a, an outspoken atheist. But one time he was, he was moved to do a video blog because a Christian had come up to him one time and given him a Bible. And it changed him. It was like, whoa. You know why? Because this guy was winsome and kind and generous. And it's like, that made sense. Here, here's what he said in his little video blog. He says about the guy who gave him a Bible. He said, he was a nice and sane and good man. And I said to myself, if you believe people might not be getting in on eternal life and you'd rather not talk about it because it would make uh, it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone to not share that with them? Pendulette. I, if I believe the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point I would tackle you. And this is more important than that. Out of the mouths of skeptics. Now, of course, not every non-Christian feels the same way about being proselytized. I get it. So discernment, gentleness, respect, these are biblical injunctions for how we get on mission, this mission of liberation for those trapped in the matrix. I get it. But the point here is that everyone in the matrix is not your enemy. They are potential friends. You get it? That's how you need to start looking at them. They are not your enemy. They are pre-Christians, if you like. They, are, they post things on Facebook that you hate. I get it. They have political positions that are heinous to you. I get it. They are not your enemy. They are potential brothers and sisters in the family of God. They say things. They do things that are offensive to you and hurtful to themselves. And you see this so clearly. I get it. They are not your enemy. They're not your enemy. They matter to God. And they are not your enemy. So who do you fight then? Who do you fight then? Well, the real enemy is these agents of evil. Spiritual agents of evil of evil. And let's go back to that verse we focused in on last week. Here's, here it is again. Ephesians chapter 6, same letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul reminds everybody, listen, for our battle is not against flesh and blood, not against human opponents, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers in the darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Now, I get it. To view the world this way, puts you into some kind of a dichotomy, right? Because when you, if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning and you suffer in the world, where does that most often come from? Well, most often it comes from, hey, people. That's where it comes from, right? If you get persecuted, that's from people. If you get shamed for not being in the in crowd, that's from people. If you get excluded, you get excluded by people. 
If you are a subject of anti-Christian bigotry, the bigots are people. If you have a relational breakdown, yes, even within your own home, yes, even with your own spouse, who last time I checked was a people and not a devil, though you might be convinced otherwise. It's a people. So who is your enemy in these situations? Well, people's what it seems like. At least that's exactly how it feels, doesn't it? It feels like people are the enemy. People are the main problem. And then you move it into the Christian realm, the problem just seems to double. Christians who are mean, Christians who are dumb, Christians who are gossiped about, Christians who don't even know the first tenets of their faith, Christians who didn't follow through on their commitments, Christians who don't live up to the high standard of the gospel, Christians who don't love like they're supposed to love. Enemies! So turn your guns on them. And we do. Oh, we do. And in all these cases, it seems like they are the problem. Well, how do we make sense of this dichotomy? Here's what we can say. Despite appearances, they are still not the enemy. However, they and you can be used by the enemy. And that's the biblical picture. In all these cases, you can be a weapon, you can be a territory that's fought over, and you can be a victim in this war. That's true about you. Again, going back to the movie, we'll play on it again. Morpheus says, the, agent, the agents are sentient programs. They can move in and out of any software still hardwired to the system. That means that anyone we haven't unplugged is potentially an agent inside the matrix. They are everyone and they are no one, okay? And so that's, again, reflective at least of a biblical picture. We believe if we believe what Paul believed about us and the world you're living in, you just can't sugarcoat it, friends. People can be used by spiritual forces of evil. Yes, you and I can be acted on by spiritual forces of evil, used as weapons, fought over as territory, attacked as opponents and victims. That is a biblical picture. And being rescued by the grace of Jesus will not spare you from these attacks. So now when we say that, we say, well, how, what, what's the extent of the damage here? Rick, how worried should I be? What does used by spiritual evil mean? Most likely this brings to up, in our mind, images of possession. And then when you think demonic possession, you go Hollywood, and now you've got a little 13-year-old girl with glowing eyes and green puke and head spinning around the room, an impotent priest shouting impotent incantations. You know, there's your picture of being used by spiritual evil. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit more about this next week. I do believe that people can cede control of themselves to the enemy and even physically be afflicted by it. And I'll give you some personal examples that I've experienced myself. And I think that's consistent with the ministry of Jesus. But if we focus there, it gets us thinking in this binary way. Totally demon-possessed, totally nonchalant. Right? Like It's like you're either all in or all out with the whole... What, what, what spiritual evil can do to me. Instead, what you get in the Bible is this consistent word used, diamonizomai. Diamonizomai, the beginning of the word is daemon, which is where we get our word for demon. It's the verb form of the noun. So, to be demonized is the most regularly used way that the Bible would talk about this. And if you understand it biblically, you realize that there's a spectrum from deeply demonized to not so deeply demonized, there's a spectrum of what this influence looks like. So scripture would kind of steer you away from that binary view, lest you think totally possessed or totally unfazed. No one is unfazed. It's not like that. Anyone can be acted on by a fallen spirit. How is the question? 
So here's a little job description. Here's what they do. Number one, discouragement. In the temptation of Jesus, we read this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, the name devil, you probably know, has a literal meaning. The literal meaning of the name devil is accuser. So what's interesting about this is if you go through, and I encourage you to do this, go back to your Bibles this week, look at Matthew chapter 4, there's three different temptations of Jesus, and in each temptation, the crux of the matter is what? The identity of Jesus. First thing that's attacked. If you are the Son of God, what happened just before this? Again, if you read it in context, you realize what happened just before this was Jesus was baptized, the Spirit of God alighted on him, and in full view of public witnesses, a voice was heard that said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Confirming for Jesus, who was 100% a human being, his very identity, son of God. So what's the thing that, that the devil wants to attack? He wants to discourage him. Are you, are you really the son of God? Well, if you are, prove it. Are you really the son of God? Are you really? You go back to that movie again, you see Neo in the early part of the movie, he's facing interrogation from the agents. And they menacingly look around him and scour over him and they throw a portfolio onto the table, a folder that's full of what? His crimes. His crimes. Now throw that in your face. All your crimes. Isn't that interesting how often you felt this when you screw up? Something says to you, you know what, you're halfway in. Why bother now? You just might as well go all the way in. Have you ever heard that? I've heard that. Now, that's the most illogical thing on one level, right? I mean, why would you do that? Like, if there's any moment for sa saving grace, if there's a moment to turn, to become new, to, to, to turn around, if there's any hope that things could get better, the moment to do this now. There's never a better moment than now, whether you're in for five steps into the pigsty or ten steps. But the voice is always like this. You're in for five steps. Might as well go in for ten. I mean, might as well. If you're in for 10, it's like, you might, you might, just, you're wrecked. Why bother now? Just go for 20. Just incredible discouragement. It is the MO. And you have not recognized it as such, perhaps. Secondly, to draw, which is to say tempt. But I'm going to stay with draw because I must keep my alliteration going. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. There is an entire uh, chapter devoted to married couples. And Paul's encouraging them to engage in regular sexual intercourse for intimacy. And, uh, but there's times he acknowledges that they will break apart for time of spiritual discipline, fasting, and extended times of prayer. And he says, do that, that's good. But then verse 15, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what Satan will work on is your physical appetites, your appetite for food and for sex and for pleasure he'll work on the appetites of the body to draw you and you are you are never drawn as we said last week to do a bad thing for a bad reason you're always drawn to do a bad thing for a good reason or to do a bad thing a good way so that's how satan will work his drawing influence he will tempt you not based on the on pure evil things but based on the good things the good thing that you want and so i you just notice this played out in the life of all addicts and um, particularly pornography, I was journaling about this after I watched a TED talk about porn. And it's, it's an epidemic, friends. It's, and I believe, a satanically driven business. 
Uh, more money is made in the porn industry than in um, all the other, other entertainment sectors, even by the NFL, if you can believe that. Um, and the speaker noted this interesting thing. As porn escalates in the life of the pornography addict, that it becomes harder and harder and harder. And of course, just like a drug, there's diminishing returns, so the stuff has to get more intense. But the interesting thing is that eventually, pornography lacks everything that makes sex great, that makes sex sexy even. It, it comes to the place where pornography is like um, an inversion of the very thing that the person who desired it wanted in the first place. And what do they want? You talk to someone, why are you using porn? Well, you know, sexual appetite's pretty strong. That's what they would say. But what you get as the thing escalates is not sex. What you get is a parody of sex. No flirting, no alluring clothing, just raw nakedness, no touching, focus on genitals, only violence. And see, I thought to myself as I was listening to this whole description of the escalation of temptation, I thought, no one actually likes this. No one actually, no one, only the tempter could drive us to need things that we actually hate. But it's not like that. And I say all sin is addiction. All sin is addiction. It all works the same way. Pornography, alcohol, drug abuse, but everything else. Even pride, self-righteousness, the whole thing. All sin is addiction. It's drawing you on your appetites into something eventually you hate. But now you're enslaved. He also seeks to destroy. So he will draw, he will discourage, and he will destroy. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be self-controlled and alert, Peter says. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So what's interesting is that he's associating persecution of the, of the brothers around the world with Satan. Satan's doing that. He's, he's understanding there's human agents in it, but behind them, malevolent spiritual agency. And you say, well, what can he do? Like, what, what, is, what is the destroyer able to do? Well, biblically, we get a picture. Uh, he, Satan literally means adversary. He opposes you. So through disease... Not all, but some. You cannot read the ministry of Jesus without realizing that some disease is driven by spiritual evil. Natural disaster, some, not all, is driven by spiritual evil. Resistance to your plans and designs. Paul said at one point, I wanted to get to you. We were trying to get to you, church. We, we wanted to encourage you, but Satan kept us from doing it. What did he do? Did he stand in the road with a pitchfork? No. There was some other agency of which Paul saw a deeper purpose, a malevolent design. The destroyer can destroy friends, and he has power in this world to touch you in this way. Deception, deception. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, and no wonder, Paul says, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's never what you seem. It's never what you seem when it comes to spiritual evil and then jesus will say in john chapter 8 the devil is the father of lies and lying is his native language so go back with me to the garden of eden and there's eve right and she's got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tempter says what he says you know on the day that you eat of that you will not die you know that right god said that we would die no you won't die you will be like god and you'll know good from evil you know what's interesting about that 
That's true. And have you read the story? They do get a knowledge of good and evil that they did not have before as innocents, and they don't die. They don't die. Ah, but they do die spiritually. Their mortality is also set in that moment. And so the best lies, AC3, are wrapped in some truth. There's a half-truth that's part of that. So great discernment is required to be able to know when you're being lied to. How would you know that? We're going to talk about that next week. You must know truth. You must set your mind on truth so that you can identify deception when it comes your way. All right, and then lastly, they divide. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, here's the context. There's a church that had a disobedient member. He was engaged in some pretty unchristian behavior, so the church spoke hard truth into his life. But that wasn't the end of the story. Paul wanted them to welcome him back after there was repentance and contrition and sorrow, and then it's like, you know what? Let's welcome him back. We'll forgive the guy. Because he knows if they don't, that Satan is waiting in the wings. Here's how he puts it. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit so that Satan will not outsmart us for we are familiar with his evil schemes. How would Satan outsmart us in this moment? Well, the church would say, you know what? We stood firm. We stood firm for the way of Jesus. We spoke the truth. We spoke it lovingly, but we spoke it boldly. We did it. And a little bit proud of ourselves in that moment. And Satan would go, yep. And that guy doesn't belong in the church. He should never, his ilk, him and his ilk should never be here. And there should be no path back. That's right. Because a church should be pure. It should stand for Jesus in this world. That's right. And there should be no problems in the church. Because it should be pure. And you, you can just see Satan all over that. So Paul says, welcome him back. And apply the same gospel that brought you into the church in the first place. Or else Satan will have out, outsmarted you. And he'll use this moment to do what? To divide. That's what he wants to do. He wants to separate you from the herd. He wants to separate you from the herd. So when you get your nose bent out of shape, when someone mistreats you in the church, the first thing he's going to want you to do is isolate. And we look around the church very often, staff members, elders, board members, and we go, haven't seen so-and-so in a long time. We go, we just understand that the devil is at work to isolate them. They've been broken, and, and Satan will turn you against flesh and blood every time. That person done me wrong. That person done me wrong. Never going back there, because that person. Friends, our battle is not against flesh and blood. And those spirits that inhabit the dark places, they would divide you, and they would cull you from the herd. Don't. And that's all I could say about that. But listen to me, friends. Very often we fail in this and are more affected than we ought to be because we just don't see the biblical picture. We do not see who the real enemy is. And so we're focused. We've got the guns turned on somebody else. Look at all these biblical pictures. Who caused the Chaldean uh, horde to steal jo Job's herds and kill his servants? Who? Who did that? If you know the story, you know who. Satan did that. And yet... Do we even give him a passing thought when we hear of terrorism today or violence in the streets? Who caused the Corinthians to turn on one of their own members? Satan did. Yet, do we pause when conflict arises and consider how we might be played, that our emotions are being jacked up, that our feelings of being hurt are being exacerbated, the feelings of unforgiveness are settling on us along with a judgmental spirit, and that's not you? 
Who kept that poor woman bent over for 18 years? That woman who Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Who did that? Who was behind that? You say, well, there was some disease in her body. Who was behind that? Jesus says, it was Satan. But do we consider warfare ever when we have a nagging headache, pops up, keeps you from prayer, scripture, spiritual discipline, some ailment that is a constant nagging, undiagnosed thing that cannot be um, uh, looked at medicinally, and we wonder, and why? You're in a battle. Who moved Ananias and Sapphira to lie to the apostles? The Bible tells you who did that. Satan did that. But do we ever see a diabolical hand behind that church fallout thing or that relational break in the ministry or that coup in the church when the people took off and took their ball and went home? Why don't we see that? Has it ever crossed your mind, friend, that not everything that crosses your mind is from you? Has that ever crossed your mind? You think it's just your mess. But what if you're engaged in combat? Who is behind that assault on your, con- your confidence? Who is it that keeps bringing up your wounds and your shame over and over and over again? You never get past it. That big old portfolio of your crimes gets thrown on the table every single morning. Who is that voice in your head that is not your voice? Obsessing about all your spouse's failures and shortcomings. Yeah, she always does that. Who is that? Followed by you ramping up in self-pity or judgmental spirit. And then you blurt out something that you regret, relational breakage. Who is that? You thought it was just you. It was just that you thought it was just your own mess. But friend, the image of God in you, restored by the grace of God, is what enrages the enemy. And he will bring his worst weapons to bear on that. And listen to me, friend. This is the truth of the matter. It might scare you. It's the truth. You can be affected by those arrows. You and me and everybody. You haven't been jettisoned out and into Eden. Not yet. Not yet. So you and I can be and will be victims of deception and destruction and division. It will happen. So here's what Jesus promised. Not that you'll be spared all these arrows. Jesus promised this. Christian, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let me say it again. Christian, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So when you wake up, you're a warrior. When you wake up, you're in battle. And you focus your guns where they belong. And you do not expect that you are going to get through this life unscathed. You do not expect that God saved you in Jesus to put you in nirvana right now. That's not the plan, friend. That's not the plan. You're going to take hits. You're going to take wounds. You're going to take bullets. It's just going to happen. This is the part of the story we're in right now. You're in warfare. You're in conflict. Expect it. Stop expecting the easy ride. Because as long as you do, you're going to turn your guns on everybody else. Like, I deserve a nice, smooth ride through life. And when it doesn't happen, then everybody gets blown away around you. Friend, they're not the enemy. That's not the enemy. And you are not promised an easy ride. You were promised the presence. You were promised the Spirit of God in you who is greater than the one in the world. So stand firm. Know your enemy. Know he's there. Know you're in a battle. Know who to fight. Know who not to fight. And then armor up, friends. Armor up. We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray.